This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thank you. All right, well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and it's great to be here with you. Happy football season. It's upon us. It's good news of great joy. Um, But here at the Axis, we love Jesus, we preach the Bible, and we seek to live lives on mission. I ask that you go ahead and grab a Bible uh, to follow along with us if you haven't already done so, and find Luke chapter 8. There should be some Bibles under the seats there in front of you. Grab it. Uh, if you have a device, turn notifications off, please, and, uh, and find Luke 8. As we're continuing through now this book of Luke, this study of Luke, we're 38 weeks in, into chapter 9, and we're taking verse by verse, thought by thought, often word by word even, as we're looking into a historical account of what it was like to be around Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, from the Bible, and so we're taking it word by word often, verse by verse, to discover who Jesus is. To give you some context, if you're, if you're new and haven't been gathering with us over the last few weeks, um, over the last three weeks, we've noticed Jesus perform some miracles, okay? And this happens chronologically. This happens on purpose. It's recorded as it happened and took place. Luke uh, records this for us, that, that Jesus proved his power over the natural realm by calming the storm and brought about a great peace, uh, the storm being uh, very similar to what we know as a hurricane. But then as soon as they get through this storm, this calm, they get to the shore, they're confronted by this demoniac in chapter 8, possessed by a legion of demons, anywhere between 2,000 and 5,000 demons, okay? He frees this demoniac from these demons who are possessing him and disciples him, trains him, commissions him to go take the gospel to his, uh, his cities, the, the Decapolis, the surrounding region where he was known notoriously as a demoniac, but now as a Christian. And then Jesus proves his power, not just naturally and supernaturally, but, but through the physical realm by healing the woman who had the issue of hemorrhaging for 12 years. Heals her instantly. 
And then he proves his power and authority over death by raising a 12-year-old sick child, sick little girl, calling her daughter um, and bringing her back uh, from life. Her child calling the hemorrhaging woman daughter, the 12-year-old girl, back from death. And so the scope of his power, the, the extent of his authority is being witnessed and understood by his disciples. And as we took note last week and what was honestly the theme of last week's sermon is that there's nothing too difficult for Jesus. There's nothing too difficult for Jesus. So I want us to keep this in mind, how these events took place in chronological order and fashion and where we land now in chapter 9 and verse 1. But now passage of scripture uh, like this one that we have in the early part of, of chapter 9 of Luke, it requires that, that we understand um, some basic hermeneutics or, or how to understand and interpret scripture. Specifically, uh, we need to, to learn today the difference between prescriptive text and descriptive text text, okay? So I need you to lean in with me, and then we're going to get to work in the text. But, but here first, we have to know that when we work the Bible, as we study Scripture, as we focus on the Bible, we've got to know the difference and discern the difference in text between something prescribing or commanding a certain action from us differently than those who are simply describing historical facts and events, in other words, there's texts that say, go do this, okay? Uh, there's texts that say, you must do this to be a healthy Christian, okay? Do it and do it in this way. But then there's also text that says, this is what they did. This is what happened, okay? Here's the history of this event. Again, like as you read the Bible, kind of building on this point here, you'll soon realize that there's different um, genres that make up the whole of the Bible, right? There's different, like, like Genesis is more narrative, Leviticus is more law, Proverbs is more wisdom literature or poetry even, like Psalms. But then you've got letters written to churches and Christians in the New Testament post-cross that seem different than, than other portions of the Bible. Then you pick up like Isaiah or Jeremiah, and you realize that's a prophetic writing, and it's really different than Matthew, than Genesis, than, than Romans. Well, you see, the, the, all the books of the Bible work together to speak into the grand picture, the grand uh, redemptive story, the meta narrative, if you will, of the Bible, of God rescuing and redeeming humanity. And every, every verse of every chapter of every book in the Bible echoes in some way as a part of the redemptive story. Okay? It's pointing in some way to Jesus, in some way to this grand narrative. But how we consider and understand and interpret these passages from different books and portions of books, it, we have to interpret it and understand it based on its genre. Practically speaking, the way you approach Genesis should be different than the way you approach Psalms. And by the way, if you like this, and if it's kind of like geeking out a little bit, and you're like, oh, this is cool, you know, or if you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, all right? Both groups that are here today, um, September 15th, Brooks Potter is going to be leading us through on Saturday mornings. I believe it's a six-week course, six-week course, Saturday mornings on understanding how to study um, and understand the Bible or a course in, in hermeneutics. I encourage you to get involved there. But anyway, when reading the Bible, it's important to ask many questions when reading the Bible. One of those being, is what I'm reading right now telling me how I should live? Or is, is what I'm reading right now telling me simply what happened? 
what's going on in the text. The difference is prescriptive and descriptive text. Prescriptive, this is how you should live. This is what your life should look like. This is what your conduct must be. Here's how you should treat others. Prescriptive, prescribing us. Then you've got something that describes certain things. It's, it's descriptive text. It's like this is what's taking place historically. This isn't how you necessarily are to live. This is not necessarily how you're to do things today. It's describing what took place. Now, although there's truths that can and should be applied from these descriptive passages, the entire passage um, is not to be taken as instructions for Christian living. But if you're a wise student, and I encourage us to be wise students, right, and to, to press into Scripture, the wise student still pays attention to these descriptive texts. You don't dismiss them. You work them, perhaps even more so than the prescriptive text. You work them to, to pull out prescriptive truths that they give you. And you'll see kind of how we do this throughout this particular passage today, okay? Because they will give you some truth that you can live on even if it's descriptive, so here in, in today's passage, we have Jesus. He's training 12 particular disciples. He's preparing 12 particular disciples. He's sending out 12 particular disciples on a particular mission that had a start date and an end date. This is mainly descriptive. It's telling us what happened when Jesus sent 12 men out on a unique mission. So our text today is kind of like the huddle before they approach the line of scrimmage and have the play. It's football season. 99% of my analogies come from that. All right? It's my past. I'm sorry. It's where we are. But it's like the quarterback, it's like the coach telling the players, here's the play. Now let's go run this play. All right? It's describing how this took place. This is uh, mainly um, only focused for these 12 men. All right? Though there are also several things worth mentioning that we can learn from, and that's what my hope is to give you today. So with all that, let's jump to Luke 9, starting in verse 1. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, James, his brother John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, or Jude, Simon the Zealot, and then the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. Jesus calls these 12 men from among his scores of followers. Don't just think that he just had 12 dudes following him around, okay? He had hundreds of people following him around, hundreds desiring to be his disciple, okay? He chooses from among these followers 12 particular ones. To a, he calls here them to a specific task and in a specific, to a specific mission. And this task here in the text that he's calling them to is ultimately to bring glory to God through the preaching of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You see it there in the text, right? And to heal and ultimately here to spread the fame of Jesus that the Messiah has come. That's this mission. Much later, perhaps two years later, 
in the Gospels, Jesus is going to send out his disciples to make more disciples, to teach them, to baptize them, and then oversee church planting and establish churches, the early church's doctrine and leadership. That's a different commissioning that we have right here. For this particular mission, for this particular event here in Luke 9, we're going to see that Jesus provides instructions to 12 men for a particular mission. And he's pointing out here that these 12 men are going to have power and authority that they're certainly going to need for this task. But before we get carried away much further here in the text, I want to focus on the very first word in the English translation, 9 verse 1, and the first word is what? Say it again. And, okay? And is what part of speech? A conjunction for the football players in the room, okay? Here's what a conjunction is, okay? A conjunction is a word that joins together two other words or phrases or parts of sentences in order to continue a certain thought. You see, Luke doesn't see chapter 9 as a heading. In your scripture, it's probably a bold 9, right? A little bit larger, maybe a subject heading. Luke didn't put these in there. Luke recorded this as one big story, and he recorded his narrative without uh, chapters and, and numbers for verses. They were added in year 1551 to help better locate a passage or portion of Scripture, and you got to enjoy the fruit of that this morning, right? That was provided for you. It was a little bit easier to find. So while you and I may consider this a different portion of Luke in his historical account, uh, perhaps maybe even a different day, Uh, Luke doesn't. Luke doesn't see this. He sees this as connected, as joined, and so we shouldn't either. So in other words, another way of saying it is Luke 9.1 could just as easily be Luke 8.57, okay? You see, Luke sees this as all connected, and there's purpose in this. There are reasons behind this connection, and I, I want to point out the most striking one for our time, okay? So this word and, it connects the previous portion of Luke's account with what's coming next. So let's, again, consider the context. I mentioned at the very beginning, remember what's just happened. Jesus has just proven his power and authority over nature, over the supernatural, over the physical with the hemorrhaging woman, and then over death with the little girl. He's just proven the scope of his authority, the scope of his power, And right on the heels of this power pact, proving that he is special, that he's unique, that he's different, he gathers these 12 men in. He calls them to himself. He gets close to them. He looks them in the eyes. He's like, hey, fellas, now you have this same power. You've got this same authority over all demons and over all diseases. I want you to go. Go in this power. Go in this authority. In other words, what, what I've just proven to you, what you've just been an eyewitness to, I'm sending you with this same power, this supernatural power and authority to go and do the same. Go, do the same. Heal. Do many wonderful things like you've seen me do here before you. And preach, proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, the disciples, the the authority and the power that they were to go in, it wasn't their own. It was an extension of the power and authority of Jesus and the power that he possesses. So unpacking the scope and the extent of the power and authority that Jesus had is what Luke is recording in chapter 8. 
But more importantly, it's what Jesus actually lived out on purpose, as this is chronological here. He's, he's showing these disciples this power and authority. So he, show, he, he performs this, and he turns around and says, now, you're going in the same power and authority. Think about this. Do you see this as something that's kind for Jesus to do it in this way? I mean, I see this as remarkably kind. He didn't give them these instructions before he proved that he had this very power and authority that he's referencing. He tells them after they've witnessed these, like, magnificent miracles. They've been eyewitnesses. They're the common denominator, themselves and Jesus. They're the consistent ones through all these things that's taken place in in Luke 8. They've been right there. He's telling them after they've been witnesses to this. That's kind. He didn't have to do it that way, did he? He didn't have to do it this way, not, not in this way. And so here's a picture of the real Jesus. The real Jesus is kind. He's generous, and he's gracious. Even in this way, we see it here in the text. But now notice that Jesus provides these 12 disciples with certain instructions to help guide them here in their evangelistic efforts. Look in verse 3. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Kind of like an undergarment that was really long that would be under the outer cloak. Well, let's go descriptive, prescriptive, okay? A descriptive truth is they did it this way. This is history. This is what Jesus, this is what Jesus told the 12 to do, and this is how the 12 did it. But if you look, there's actually a prescriptive truth here. Look at what Jesus is essentially saying. He's essentially saying, guys, trust me. As you go, I will take care of you. There's something bigger here at play. I want others to to be a part in this mission by supplying you needs as you need them. There's more. I'm orchestrating something bigger than just you taking care of yourself. Others are going to be participating, and they're going to provide for you, and they're going to be able to be part of the story. So you just go. And, and he's not telling this because they need to be lightweight and not really carry a lot because they're going to be hiking up through all these things. They're going to be exhausted physically. No, no, no. He's telling this because he's working out something that's bigger, and he's ultimately doing this because he's asking them to trust him. Well, God tells us the same. As we go out and we live missional lives for his glory, he's telling us, even through this little shadow of a verse, that as he calls us and sends us, that he's going to take care of us and we can trust him. We can trust him. He's going to provide what we need when we need it. Then moving on to verse 4, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Don't hop from home to home. He's basically saying, go to a community, get there, be welcomed, stay there, preach, teach, and when you're finished, don't go to the neighbor's house. Let them go to the neighbor's house. You move to a different community, and you find another house of peace and continue. Well, that's descriptive truth. That's not prescriptive teaching, okay? That's just how it happened. Then in verse 5, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Sort of like a, a written account um, of of proof of their rejection, this testimony against them. Well, these disciples, they're ambassadors of Jesus, right? They're commissioned by Jesus, sent by Jesus, representing Jesus, okay? So they're ambassadors, representatives. So those who received these 12, ultimately, were also, they were receiving Jesus. 
Well, to shake off or to shake out here, this dust is a violent gesture uh, showing disdain and disfavor in first century Jerusalem. It was making a statement, a strong statement in how you viewed certain others. So rejection is sometimes to be expected and must be accepted, but to, to shake the dust off your feet was to mark out that particular home, that particular town, that certain community, that place has rejected the messengers of the Messiah. They've rejected Jesus, and they are awaiting judgment. So for the disciples to do this to homes, to towns, to communities, was a symbolic way of saying that those places are pagan. Those places are polluted spiritually. And unless they humble themselves and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah, they're anticipating God's judgment. Well, Jesus didn't want his men to be surprised by being rejected. He prepares them for it, almost to expect it. It's like when this happens, here's what you're to do. Preparing them in this way helps them stay the course when they get rejected, right? It's not surprising them. He's told them how to handle this. I can trust him through this. It helps prepare them in this way. I even here see that this says a lot about Jesus and who he is and his heart for his followers and how he carefully prepares these disciples for this journey, for this mission. I love that, that Jesus cares enough about these 12 men to prepare them carefully in this way. This is a, this is a, a beautiful picture of, of healthy discipleship, of a caring rabbi, of a good teacher, and a compassionate guide helping his disciples as they go out on this task. Again, I see this as a beautiful picture at the real Jesus. Then in verse 6, and they, they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So the kingdom of God is advancing. Jesus and his story, his gospel, him being the Messiah, this is expanding. Hope has come, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is beginning to spread. So verse 7, when Herod, the Tetrarch, hears about all that's happening, he's perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, but then by others that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I killed, I I beheaded him, but who is this about whom I, I hear such things? And he sought to see Jesus. And that, that should be written of us too, right? Well, as the disciples begin to obey the commissioning of Jesus, word begins to spread very quickly. Rumors begin to surface around the Middle East. John the Baptist is back from the dead. No, it's Elijah. The mighty Elijah is back after being gone and dead for 900 years. No, it's the prophets. It's the prophets from back in the day. They've come to revisit us. That's a ruckus. Upheavals beginning. This is a disturbance, and Rome does not like disturbances. Rome is poised. Rome is calculated. Rome is powerful. Rome is controlled. First century Rome was tight. In fact, Herod, who in his mid-40s here, he was Rome's very insecure man overseeing Galilee. He says, well, I know I killed John. I served his head on a platter to my family. So so who's this new messenger? If John the Baptist is dead, who's this now that's doing these things? Like, this is crazy. The news, the reports that I'm getting. So the political powers begin to question the authority and the power of Jesus. 
Can you begin to feel the tension that's building, the jealousy that's brewing? This tension and this jealousy for power and authority continues all the way to the cross, as we'll see in the months to come. Perhaps years, depends on how long it takes us to get through Luke. (laughs) Not only was Herod Antipas instrumental in killing John the Baptist, as we're going to learn, he's also instrumental in the killing of Jesus of Nazareth. So that's our text. Now here's how I want to wrap up all this for us today. You know, this morning's passage, as we make our way through Luke, I'm not picking and choosing what we're preaching. It's taking what's given to us by Scripture. Um, This has come to us uh, more in a form of commentary on the early days of Jesus' mission, the early days of the church. It's not really a provocative passage. If you want to go have a Bible study with your roommates, if you want to sit your children down and, and you know, prove what a great, wonderful teacher you are, dads, moms, if you want to share the gospel with your neighbor, you're probably not going to go to these verses. I mean, it's not provocative. Um, it's not exciting. It's kind of just New Testament commentary. I mean, it's essentially Luke, being a good historian, he's providing us with some behind-the-scenes historical material, Right? But in closing here, I'd like to go back to a phrase that's really worked in my heart this week, okay? When you find a passage like this, I encourage you, really, with any scripture, to find the gospel, to find the gospel echo. If it's not just clearly there, find where it echoes, where it reverberates from. Find a shadow, okay, of the bigger story than the story that you're reading. That's what I want us to do. Let's look in verse 5. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. I've simply got two thoughts. First, we did not receive Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about personally receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior, trusting Him, accepting Him in this way, in a salvific way. I'm talking about as mankind. Humanity did not receive Jesus. It's recorded in history, both secular history, biblical history. Jesus was crucified on a cross. He was killed. Ultimately, he was not received. He was rejected and refused. Now, be reminded, Jesus tells his disciples, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. I want you to lean in, think with me here as I read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this John the Baptist that we read about with Herod, He's referenced here. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, speaking of Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not what? did not receive him. Therefore, we, as humanity, we deserve for Jesus to shake the dust off his own feet as a testimony against us. 
and leave us, mark us, identify us as those to be judged by God, rightly condemned by God, choosing to do our thing rather than His. You see, we rejected Jesus. We laughed at Him. We made fun of Him. We mocked Him. We hit Him. We scourged Him. We shamed Him. We crucified Him. We ultimately refused Him. First thought. The second thought I have for us here is God persists through our rejection. Okay? Or to put it another way, God's grace is greater than our sin. His grace is faster than our rebellion. His grace is deeper still. Continuing in John 1, verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not physically, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh through your parents, nor of the will of man, but of God. You've been born again. A miracle has taken place in your heart. When you receive Jesus and you believe Him, you become a child of God. The Holy Spirit transforms you on the inside. You're being born again, made new, regenerated, spiritually rejuvenated, fit now to live forever in life, eternal life in eternity. You see, Adam and Eve, they were the very first ones to reject God. They were the very first ones to sin, sin rejecting God in His way. They were the very first ones to do their own thing in their own way rather than doing God's thing in God's way. And so we, man, we're just like our first parents. We, we reject him, yet, yet he sent his son to stand in for us, receiving what we deserve for our rebellion and our rejection if we simply believe. If we simply believe, we're received. Scripture tells us we can be adopted into this family. We were orphaned by our rebellion. We can be adopted through the work of Jesus Christ, regenerated, made alive, made new, fit now for a relationship with God. We can be saved. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's our rejection of God and of Jesus that deserves judgment. It deserves God's wrath. We've earned God's attention but we've only earned his anger and his wrath, his judgment. But Jesus, he came to us, and he stepped in as our representative. He stepped in as our substitute, and he received our judgment for us. And it's the gospel that tells us that the judgment that our rejection of God deserves, friend, it's already been placed on Jesus. Jesus has already dealt with it and taken care of it. We've, we've sinned against the creator of the world. We've sinned against the good creator of all humanity. And God has to punish sin or else he'd cease to be just. He'd cease to be holy. He would cease to be pure. He would cease to be good. Therefore, in being judged by God, we get what we deserve. And in some ways, if you really get down to it, we get what we want. We get, we get what we've asked for. And this is ultimately eternal death. But what one of the beauties of, this, of the gospel is found. One of the beauties that's found in the work and the mission of Jesus Christ is that he came to endure this punishment that we deserve for our sinfulness, for our rejection of what is truly beautiful and right and good. Jesus didn't come for our reception. He came for our rejection. 
And this is the gospel that Jesus came to, to bear the wrath of God upon himself. He came to take it on upon himself rather than to allow you to receive what you deserve. Rather than to ask you to endure this very punishment and wrath. Rather to ask you and your shoulders to deal with it. He takes it upon himself so that you don't have to. And it's believing this that God graciously and tenderly, he redefines you. He changes you. He makes you new from the inside out. So be reminded here of a truth that you know, a verse that you can perhaps quote, that God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever simply believes, don't complicate it, don't make it more difficult than what he's asking it to be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him is not going to perish, is not going to die, but they're going to have eternal life. They're not going to get what they deserve. They're going to get life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn or shame the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. You're not judged in this way. Romans 5, 8 builds on this, that God shows his love for us and that while we're still rebels and rejecting him, Christ died for us. And then Paul continues, but it is only this that guarantees that we will be saved by him from the wrath of God, Romans 5, 9. And so, friend, if we're to be faithful to Scripture, and I, I genuinely, this is my desire, if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, it's, it's difficult to deal at length with the love of God without dealing with God's wrath as well. This is because God's wrath, which is a, a function of His holiness, it's a function of His justice when it confronts rebellion, this, this wrath of God is on us all because we've all sinned in some way. We've all rejected Him. We've all chosen to do our own thing rather than submit and, and uh, trust Him as we should. And so you see the Bible teaches that we're all, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, objects of wrath or, or children of wrath. And this is because of our pride. It's because of our, our proud rebellion against God. And it's because of our rejection of Him. Yet what is so marvelous is that this same God who has every just cause to be angry and wrathful towards us is nevertheless the God of love. Not because He holds it back from us, but because He puts it on Jesus. The wrath is still there, but Jesus absorbs it for us and takes it for us. But it's this God of love that sends Jesus to us. It's the God of love that sent out the disciples. And it's the God of love that saved you. And it's the God of love that towards us that compels us to live lives on mission for Jesus today. And so Christian, believing this, you and I, we now get to live lives on mission. We get to participate in this commissioning of, of, of the gospel to advance the kingdom forward by telling the gospel, by preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, uh, portraying the gospel, and living out this gospel. Because later, two and a half years later, Jesus has his 11 because the betrayer has hung himself. He's got his 11 men in Matthew 28. He pulls them together once more, and he's, he references his authority again, just like Luke does in 9. He records Jesus is referencing his power and authority. He does so in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and here on earth has been given to me. So this comes on, 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 on good standing here, okay? All right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Be reminded that he didn't ask you to go tell bad news. 
Jesus has commissioned you, Christian, to go tell good news. He's commissioned you to go tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're a boss, all right, uh, figuratively speaking, he didn't ask you to go fire people. He asked you to hire people and give them raises, right? This is good news. It shouldn't be something that you dread. This is exciting. You've been changed, and you get to tell people about the change that can take place in their hearts and how they, too, can have peace and how they, too, can experience this love and grace instead of judgment and fear. So, Christian, let's do this. Let's believe this. Let's tell others of the great God that we have, the great loving God of God of grace who sent his son to suffer and die and beat death in our place. This is what we get to participate in. This is what we get to believe. And so take the gospel to your heart continually and take the gospel to the nations and to your, to your neighbor. Well, Christian... An abrupt ending to this strange passage today, but we're going to move to communion. This communion is for you, Christian. I want you to remember and I want you to celebrate this hope that we have this morning. Be reminded that we rejected Jesus through our sin, and yet he sent his son to stand in for us. He sent his son to receive what we deserve for our rebellion and rejection if we simply believe. If we simply believe we're received and we're adopted, made alive, and we're saved. Friend, Jesus gives us life. He reconciles us back to God through his death. And Jesus no longer wipes the dust off his feet. Instead, he washes ours. This is the gospel. And even this took place in the upper room during communion when he was with his disciples. He took some bread and he told his men, this piece of bread here is symbolic of my life that I've lived for you. This is what's going to be a sacrifice for you. As often as you take this, I want you to remember me and what I've done for you. Then he gave them a cup of red liquid wine. We have wine or juice here. He says, this is symbolic and represents my blood that's poured out for you so that you can be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to my Father, and be adopted into the family. Remember me as often as you take this bread and drink this cup. Do so until I return. So we do this. We do this together as a church family. We do this as Christians. Remembering the fact that Jesus has saved us and shown us radical grace. Christian, let's tell others about this good news and see that they too can take this meal with us one day. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace that you've shown us time and time again, but specifically through this passage, just knowing when we read verses like verse 5, just knowing what we deserve when we read that, we, we know that, that, that we haven't accepted you in this way and that we've done more rejecting than accepting, yet you sent Jesus to us to allow us to be perfectly received to yourself. God, thank you for this gospel truth. God, help us believe it. Help us believe it more. Help us remember it even now through, through communion as we take this together. Well, we can't wait to take this meal with you one day. Can't wait to see you. Can't wait to understand so much more than, than what we do now. But in the meantime, Lord, just help us trust you. In the areas that we don't have it all figured out, just give us faith. Or give us humility. Man, we need humility. 
and let us believe you. Lord, through your Spirit working in our hearts, allow those who, who make up the Axis Church, allow us to believe that we have this same power and authority that you had that can propel us to be obedient, to go to the hard places, to the, to the difficult conversations. To, Lord, as we are light bearers, as we're ambassadors, Lord, let us know that it's not in our strength, it's not in our power, it's not in our authority, it's borrowed, it's, it's given to us, it's not original to us, it's placed in us as we are now living temples with the Holy Spirit living in us, that we can now boldly go where you're leading us, trusting you that you'll provide for us as we go live lives on mission for your glory. So Lord, let us not look to our own personality, our own skills, our own comfort. But Lord, let us look to the command of going and teaching and making disciples and being empowered and emboldened, not by just us white-knuckling it, but by embracing more and more what it means to be Spirit-filled and to have your, your Spirit living in us as we go and take this gospel bravely and courageously to our hearts, to our hearts, and to the hearts of others. God, help us, help us be a church that just cannot stay silent about Jesus. Not just on Sundays, that could be any church. But on Mondays and Wednesdays and Saturdays, Lord, let us, let us catch a glimpse of what really matters in this life and allow that to fuel our mission even more, our urgency even more. Lord, let us not be complacent. Let us not be comfortable. And don't let us respond out of guilt or shame or simply being motivated because it's, well, it's noble, we should do this. But Lord, let us respond because the Spirit's actually changing us from within. Because we're responding to your goodness we're not doing to try to get you to respond favorably. You've already responded favorably. You've already done this in our death. In our death, while we were still rebels and sinners, you died for us. So we're simply responding to this. God, do this work in our hearts. Help us as we speak the truth to our loved ones, our, our roommates, our family, to ourselves. We'll be with this time of remembering now, this time of communion. Lord, add your special blessing to this time, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.